Welcome to Central Coast Conversations, the podcast that will feature in-depth and engaging discussions with influencers and community leaders, as well as national and local hot topics that are being talked about by everyone, everywhere. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Yvonne Thomas, and it is indeed a pleasure to have the City of Seaside's Chief of Police, Nick Borges, as my special guest today. Chief Borges has worked for the Seaside Police Department for 20 years, and he has devoted his life to helping others and changing police culture. His motto is simple, never miss an opportunity to positively change someone's life. You don't wanna miss this very informative and interesting episode. Coming up next is my conversation with Seaside Police Chief, Nick Borges. All right, welcome to the podcast, Chief Nick. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. You were promoted to Chief last fall during a somewhat volatile time for law enforcement officers, and you've worked for the Seaside Police Department for 20 years. So let's just start with you sharing your story with us of why you became a police officer. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I never wanted to be a police officer. And you may have heard me say this before, but I started off, I come from a very hardworking family, very loving family. And um, my dad was born and raised in Portugal, in the islands of the Azores. He came here when he was 17 years old. He ended up um, meeting my mother. She's from the Central Valley, also Portuguese. And... Had, had us. I have an uh, older brother and a younger sister. And again, I came from a very loving household, but we were, you know, we weren't wealthy. We worked very hard for everything we had. And I guess I was the black sheep of, of my family. I found myself at a relatively young age, pretty much in the teenage years, really just struggling. Um, found myself very angry and I got into quite a bit of trouble. I actually got in a, a lot of trouble with the police was arrested several times as a young, young person, uh, spent some time in juvenile hall on more than one occasion and associated myself with very, just other kids who were troubled and angry, kind of like-minded. Um, something happened to me much later on in life. I was about 19 years old. I was working at Bruno's market in Carmel and I was walking down the street and I know this sounds very cliche, but there was this tree in this roadway and it kind of split the road so you could walk on either side of the road. And I just stopped there. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, this is really like, this is cliche. And I just kind of froze. And I looked to my left and there was this house. It's still there with this white picket fence. And it has these beautiful roses around it. And I just got goosebumps because that house was one of the houses on my dad's gardening business that mm. he would take my brother and I to go do landscaping and I remember cutting the grass and trimming the roses and, and cleaning up the, the leaves and so forth. And I just thought to myself, how did my father come from another country, make a life for himself? He ended up becoming a firefighter in Pacific Grove okay. after 27 years. Mm -hmm. And here I am at 19 years old. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with working at a market, but I just felt that I, I, I could do more. I want to do more of myself uh, than just work at a small family market. The rest of my life. So at that moment, I decided I wanted to be a 
juvenile probation officer. I wanted to do something where I could give back and maybe help kids not follow the path that I fell onto. And I realized I had to join a police academy, which I was not fond of. Uh, I didn't want to be around the police. I wasn't comfortable with police. The juvenile probation aspect was comfortable for me because they worked inside the facility with kids who were in there. I felt that'd be a good way to mentor and and interact with with the youth. Um, But you had to join a police academy, and I learned that. uh, To be a peace officer, you had to do that. So I joined the local police academy at MPC, and within one month, so I joined it in August of 2001, and a month later is when September 11th happened, 9-11. And again, the way I relate this to younger people today is it's very similar to COVID, how COVID someday the younger generation will be telling the younger, younger generation about this COVID thing that hit us. And they may not be be able to relate to it, but they can understand that 9-11 changed the world Mm -hmm. and it certainly changed our country. And at that moment, I realized I, I want to be on the front lines. I want to be running into extreme danger and stop things at that point. So um, that was the first part of my battle. Then the battle was getting higher. Right. So um, that was a hard thing to do because I had a very uh, intense background. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I had been to juvenile hall several times. I had, I was arrested for criminal charges and it was very difficult, even though it's all juvenile stuff, your background, it comes out. And when you go and apply places and especially police departments, these things come out and you have to explain yourself. And I was very young at the time. I was 21 years old applying to become a police officer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have things when I was 16 and 17, that's not a long gap of time. So I got turned down quite a bit. They gave you a hard time. Very hard time. Mm-hmm. I, I would make it through someplace. I'd make it through oral panels and then I would get shut down. Usually after the background would come and I kind of learned to accept it, but there's many agencies on this peninsula that, um, that, that turned me down. And, um, at the time I was working in Carmel and I had, I used to, people would steal from there all the time. And mm-hmm. one of the last times I remember this guy came in, he was really intoxicated and he, um, he was stealing cheese and beer of all things to steal. <laughs> that was whatever he, he wanted cheese and beer that yeah. <laughs> And I was in the back and I remember walking out and the owner, the owner's wife, and she's one of the owners as well. He was pushing her. He had just thrown her into like this little cheese, the fridge area section. And I chased this guy for about six or seven blocks, caught him and made sure that I came back with the cheese and the beer and the Carmel police were called. And the chief at the time gave me his card and said, I'm going to hire you as a police officer. And I thought, oh, finally, I'm going to get in the door somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and that didn't happen. <laughs> they, they got in the background like, yeah, no, we're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Salinas, I, I applied with Salinas and I made it to the background phase, same thing. And then I started just leaving this area. So I figured, well, I, I grew up in this area. Um, I got in some trouble here at Seaside and, and Pacific Grove and Monterey. Okay. So I figured, you know, I'll, I'll branch out. So I started going to the um, the Bay Area and I applied in Santa Rosa. I applied in Mountain View. I applied so many different places and all rejected. And funny enough, I was actually at the very first 9-11 anniversary mm-hmm. in 2002. Okay. And I, the only reason, so the only reason I did not apply with Seaside is because I thought they weren't hiring. And a gentleman, he retired here as a commander. His name is Mike Kimball. He came into the academy, and I still have this disc. It's a really unique recruiting disc. And he told us that they were hiring for reserve police officers. 
So I applied for Seaside as a reserve police officer. I thought this would be great. I know the city pretty well. Mm-hmm. I have family here. This would be this would be a nice fit. And I'll get my foot in the door if I can get in as a reserve. And I was in um, New York City, and I was still in the process. And right when I got back from New York City, I got called in by a police captain here, and he asked me, "Why are you applying for basically a part-time police officer?" Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, I, I don't know. That's all that's open." He goes, "No, we have full-time." positions. Wow. I said, I would love to do that. So they transferred my, my, um, personnel file to a full time. And I still thought, oh, a, mm, they're not going to hire me. And they did. They ultimately, they gave me a, a shot. And, um, Tony Solicito was the chief at the time. And he still, to this day says, I'm so glad I took a chance on you because that's all I needed was a chance. I, I made a lot of mistakes as a young person. I recognized those and I grew up. I realized I had to grow up someday and and I've never forgotten that. And I think it really helps. It helps me identify better with the public, especially people who are struggling. Absolutely. Um, Cause you had, I was intense as a police officer. I mean, I literally, I won't say names, but there are people, some have passed. I was 21 and I knew they were selling. There's one individual who was selling crack cocaine very heavily out here and the police knew it too, but there seemed like there was no effort to really address that. And I would see, because I worked nights as well, and I would see the effects of what crack cocaine was doing to individuals and families. It was destroying families. So I would go to this one particular, uh, I say young man, he was much older and he has passed since. I went and knocked on his door and I remember he said, can I help you? And I said, I just want to let you know, I know you're selling crack cocaine. Um, If you don't stop doing that, I'm going to enforce the law. I'm going to arrest you. But I also want to give you an opportunity to change your life. And here I am, 21, talking to a man who was probably at the time close to 50, mm-hmm. late 40s. And I said, I'll, I'll be here to help you get a job. It won't pay as well, but I'll be a reference. You'll never have to look over your shoulder, be very low stress, but you'll be happy and you won't be hurting the public. And he kind of laughed me off at that point. And about one or two weeks later, I, I caught him at the Walgreens doing a hand-to-hand drug exchange mm-hmm. right in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And arrested him. And then I ended up doing a search warrant. So I arrested him twice in the same day. In fact, after I released him, he was at a house and we went back to serve a search warrant. He was in this kitchen area cutting up crack cocaine and bagging crack cocaine on his table. And and I told him, I said, look, I I, I really want to help you. And and we had this incredible conversation in our in our jail at the Seaside Police Department. And he and he was this real big guy. Mm-hmm. And we had this incredible hug. It was like this beautiful hug. And he was the softest. He, he would look very intimidating because he was so large. And um, and he was very knowledgeable with the street with the street game. But we had this hug in the jail. It was like he, was, he thanked me. He said, man, I wish I would have listened to you. I wish I would have listened to you when you knocked on my door. And his mom, you know, to this day, still reminds me of that. And, and uh, I was really sad when he passed away because I think he really wanted to change his life. But that's all he knew is to make money. So to go back to your question is I do believe things happen for a reason. I never, I was not one of those kids that was playing with police cars saying, I want to be a police and dressing up. That wasn't me. I did not, I did not want anything to do with it based on my own experiences of, of what I encountered with the police and, and the friends I associated with. That's such an interesting story. Yeah. And based on what's going on with policing right now, Reimagining policing has been a national hot topic for quite some time, and it is a somewhat polarizing subject. So oversight on law enforcement is a necessary check and balances. 
and our communities here on the Monterey Peninsula are anxious for more transparency from the police. So as chief of police in Seaside, tell us how you plan to achieve that. Well, I think for those who are are living in Seaside and even here on the peninsula of this region, I think they see it. I think they see that there is more transparency than there ever has been in my experience. I've been here for 20 years and I'll just give an example. Social media has been huge for a long, long time. And about 2017 is when we kicked off our social media stuff and started to put it out there. And that's when it was really growing. And, mm-hmm. and that's when law enforcement was realizing, at least here locally, we should probably jump on this whole social media thing. The problem is, is that it was a, a one view source of information. So you get to put out what you want to put out. And we've had leaders before me that were very specific of, we don't put out anything bad. We're going to put out all the roses, all the beautiful stuff, all the handshakes, all the high fives. That's what we're going to put out. If we do something silly, we'll put that out. If we have a community event, we're going to put that out. And the problem is, is that the public sees through that. They know that's not real. We're a small community. If you hear gunshots and the next day you go to social media to figure out what's going on and you say, well, the police officers were, they had a party and they were dancing. That's not what the public wants to see. They want to know the good and the bad and the ugly. So the one thing that I I did when I stepped in to change that is I put it out there. If we encounter something, I want the public to know what is going on. And there are certain things that, you know, we may not tell the public, but, but that's very limited. I believe you can almost say, unless it's going to truly compromise what you're doing, Mm -hmm. we should get that out to the public. And we have been, um, Police too often will will go to that catchphrase. They're probably taught that. I went to a couple media classes. There's not a lot I've ever taken away from those because it's so robotic. Right. But you hear the standard thing all the time is um, we can't give that information. It's an ongoing investigation. We don't want to compromise our efforts and so forth. And there are some times that's very truthful that the there was a shooting in Salinas last week. The sheriff was on point. Those were those were the talking points, but those were very factual. It was an there were shots ringing out moments before she went up for the press conference. I was right next to her and we knew that there was gunfire going off um, in the area. Mm-hmm. So that's a good time to, to be limited. But other than that, we have to be out there. It can't just be words either. I changed the motto from honor, pride, and commitment. We've, we've had, we had that motto of our department on our cars, on our business cards since 2006. Right. And somebody asked, well, where'd we come up with that? That that was one of my suggestions. I had about 10 suggestions, but Chief Solicito asked us back in 06, and I just put out a bunch of different ones, mm-hmm. and he liked that one. So it was on our cars. But that doesn't have a lot of meaning. When the public sees the side of a police car, they see honor, pride, and commitment. What does that mean? You're proud of what you do. You're committed to what you do. What, what, I want it to be something you can relate to. And And I came up with this model a long time ago. I was always trying to figure out and simplify things of why is it so complicated? Why, why can't we be better? And I used to have, when I was a supervisor, I came up with the four S's, uh, you know, how to have a healthy team. And it was uh, structure, stability, support, and service, I think. Mm-hmm. And then for me, it was trust. It was all about trust because that word has so much meaning. And when you break down that, what does trust mean? It's transparency, which right. goes to your question. Mm-hmm. It's respect. It's treating people all the time with respect. And I'll be honest, there are, there have been times I've been upset out here. Yeah. There have been times I've been frustrated with people. I've sat across the table from people that I absolutely despised. 
child molesters, people who just committed murder, but I still treated them with respect. They're still a human being somewhere in there. Even if they, they're lost somewhere, they're still a human being. You have to treat them with that respect and um, unity. We have to be united as a community. And the, I know these are words, but I really want to show with action that we're doing these. Right. We have the lights on programs that goes just to, just to what we're talking about with unity, really working in partnership and helping our community um, service. I want our police department to feel like it's a service. You feel like you make a phone call and professionals are coming to address whatever need that you may have, whether it's something scary and violent, or it's something as just a couple of months ago, we got a phone call just on the other side of Broadway here because there was a pigeon that was in someone's home. You know, the lady I'll tell you offline, Okay. But there was a pigeon in her house okay. since MLK day, since January. And this was in, this was in March. I uh-huh. could not get rid of this pigeon. So well, you know what? Let me see what I could do for you. And I got rid of the, without harming the pigeon at uh-huh. all. Just maybe it was my presence. Just opened some windows and that pigeon took off and okay. it was gone. So, but I want people to know we're here for any need that you have. And then training, training's key. Mm-hmm. We have to constantly be training. And, and I said this the other day at the George Floyd uh, symposium is maybe we also need training in teaching leaders how to fire bad cops because you see this and I understand the legalities. I understand it's easier said than done, Yeah. but there has to be that culture where um, we talk about uh, qualified immunity and, and the police officers always get stressed out when you start talking about that. Well, if you take yeah. that away, we're not going to be active because it's too much liability. So wait a minute. Do you guys realize it's already not there? Yeah. If you are doing something illegal and using your role to commit that crime out in the street, whether it's abusing someone or whatever it is, you don't get qualified immunity. That's out the window already. Right. So I like that discussion, but I always say I'm, I'm for it, getting rid of it because it's already gone when you commit a crime. It's, it's such a touchy subject. And when you bring it up, um, people just fly off the handle because they're so far apart. There's such a wide division in terms of people that believe in it and then people that are against it. So I don't know how we ever get to the part where we're getting closer to being together. On that. I, I think this is a great step. Just having a conversation with a community leader and myself to get those perspectives, because I think we're already there. It's just, there's so much other noise in between that, that it separates that, but we are already there. No good police officer wants a bad police officer to be protected with qualified immunity. None of them. You, and you, and in most cases, if, if the prosecutors are doing the right thing, they won't be protected. It's gone. You committed a crime. Tyree Nichols is a great example. George Floyd is a, there's no qualified immunity with yeah. these guys. They are, they're going to jail. One of them's already in jail. So it's, it does exist. Um, and there's a lot of debate going on, but again, a lot of it is just noise. Just get rid of it for all or keep it for police officers will not have it if they're committing a crime. And, and, and there could be a good opportunity for them to have it when they're doing things in very good faith and they're doing things professionally right. and within the law and within policy. And it's obvious. And, and a lot of times that's what's happening, but when you see these other cases where they're not happening, um, that needs to be addressed. And, and police officers like me, I'm not afraid to say it. I am not for it in those cases at all. Can you give a percentage of law enforcement officials that think like you do? I know that's a hard question, but. You know, I, it, it's really hard to say because unfortunately law enforcement leaders across the country oftentimes get so politicized. They get so caught up in being a political figure 
that it's hard for me to give a real assessment on what they truly think. I will say regionally and even chiefs at a national level that I have become friends with or talked to, they're very similar minded. They believe the same exact things that I'm sharing with you. And some of them, some of them in larger departments, they may not be able to say that. They won't say that because they, there'll be some backlash from certain constituents. And I think that's that's their perspective. I like to be honest. Whatever that feedback is, I need to be honest. And people need to know I'm coming from a place of being genuine. But I, I would say here locally, um, we've had these conversations. We just had a chief's retreat this past uh, couple of weeks ago. And all the Monterey County chiefs, except for I think one didn't make it. The DA was there. Uh, the sheriff was there. We are all on board. Like it is pretty consistent in our, in our thought pattern okay. of how we feel and think. Um, Seaside, we just we just take lead on a lot of things. We just do it. And and there are times where, where we notice that, and I won't call anybody out, but there are times we notice they wait to see what happens with what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then if it's safe enough, then you see other people like, oh, when we're going to try this. Right. Seaside's not afraid to be a leader and not afraid to be progressive. And and we're listening to what our community wants okay. the best we can. That's great. You mentioned the, um, the incident in East Salinas last week. And I know because of the ongoing investigation, you can't talk too much about it. But can you explain why was Seaside Police Department involved in that situation? And I saw a lot of other local law enforcement officers. How does that work when they call you in? It was a huge thing all over the news, and I think it hit the national news too. So why why were the other local law enforcement officials there? So we have a mutual aid agreement in the county, so we can respond anytime somebody calls for that mutual aid help, mm-hmm. and they call for it. They gave that call of, we need all hands on deck on this one. And Seaside, to my knowledge, um, I responded to that. We had a couple others, t- total of 10, 11, including myself, responded. We had our detectives responded. It was the Seaside Police Department and Monterey that arrived that I'm aware of were the first outside agency. Salinas PD was there within seconds. Mm -hmm. Seaside PD and I believe Monterey PD were there within minutes, just a few minutes. And uh, gunfire had just stopped when we arrived. I mean, I was in Salinas and the radio traffic is we were on their, their radio frequency. You could still hear gunfire going off on the radio and the deputies, you know, in distress yelling. And right when I got there, one of the deputies led me to where everyone was kind of congregating to start to organize this this chaos. And they said the shooting, the, the shots had just stopped. So that's that's kind of how we got involved. And this is the nice thing about having relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, the sheriff, I have a great relationship with with Sheriff Nieto. She was the Marina chief for, for five years, mm-hmm. and her and I developed a friendship. Um, I have a lot of respect for her. So she was there on scene when I got there. And immediately she grabbed me and she put me with her command staff with the undersheriff and one of the chief deputies and said, we have a seaside chief here, put him to work, give him, give him an assignment. So right within minutes of this thing uh, unfolding and still continuing for the next eight plus hours, seaside PD had a critical role in, in the, uh, in the command post. Were you there the entire time? I was there. I I left for one hour and I came back. I was there pretty much the entire time. Mm -hmm. Uh, my staff was there the entire time, and um, one of the deputies, a uh, young lady who was at the door, she was there, and um, this is all public. She was there, and there was no question she had been involved in this. Her clothing had blood on it, and um, she wasn't injured, but I could tell emotionally she was injured, and and I just hugged her. I grabbed her and hugged her and 
first thing was that was my assignment is to get an investigative body going and start gathering as much information. So when the tactical teams came, they knew um, as much information as they, they, they needed. And I just hugged this young lady and I asked her, are you okay? And she says, she said, I'm okay. I'm okay. But the look in her eye, I mean, you can't lie. The soul doesn't lie. And she, she was not okay. And I just hugged her. I said, you're here, just breathe. You're going to go through, you know, some, some emotional things here and you're going to almost feel dreamy. Just try to breathe and relax. And we're going to get some information to help give it to the teams that are going to have to go in and be in the, in the hot zones. She was great. Um, there was another uh, deputy there. I know her for many years. She's doing really well. Um, we're just so glad that that this this young man survived. I really wish it didn't end the way it ended. Yeah. But I will tell you, I've been in several situations very similar to this mm-hmm. throughout my career, and this is probably the worst one. I mean this this guy was so determined, and this is all public. This guy had a gas mask, so when the SWAT team was shooting gas through the windows, there was no effect because he had a gas mask. He had a ballistic helmet. He had uh, ballistic armor on his body. He was wearing fatigues. He was armed with numerous rifles. The last weapon he had in his hand was an AK-47 with his finger on the trigger. And I know that because this is why I love about Seaside. They had all these drones. There were so many drones flying that day. You couldn't miss it. They're I all over. I heard he shot down some drones. Seven drones. Yeah. Very expensive drones to mm-hmm. my understanding. And this guy was a major threat. He was not stopping. He was going to shoot it out no matter what happened. This guy was going to, it was really bad. So the, the tactical teams there that were ran by the sheriff's office and, and Selena said, we just need a drone to get inside and pinpoint where he is. So we know where the threat is. And Seaside had the smallest drone, the least expensive drone. Yeah. I, mean, I, I call it our Radio Shack drone. <laughs> I don't even think Radio Shack exists anymore. Mm-hmm. Our drone was the only one because of its size and it was a little bit more quiet, went through the window, went in the room and was able to expose where this guy was hiding behind the couch. Wow. And then we could get the full picture of his gas mask and his helmet and the weapon and, and everything else. And, and the rest of it beyond that is confidential um, because that, that wasn't released. But I, I just proud to say Seaside was, we, we walked away from that thinking, Good thing we were here. We felt very important at that moment. Um, and really, it's because we had the cheapest drone that was quiet, <laughs> but it worked. Okay. I'm glad you can find a little bit of humor there because it's just a very scary situation. It was terrifying. Yeah. yeah. I was born and raised here, similar to you. And the relationship between the community and the police has had some serious challenges over the years. So this area has always been um, what I call a melting pot. And the demographics have drastically changed since I was a kid, but Seaside is still home to a lot of minorities and many who still have issues and real fear of the police department. How do we start building a bridge to improve that relationship? Well, again, I, I think we're, we're working really hard on that. Um, being transparent, getting to know people, getting out of our cars, hosting community events, having programs that are very much designed about community. Um, we talked about our Lights On program where we are giving vouchers instead of tickets for broken taillights and broken headlights, things that people really struggle with. I've personally given out two already. I I had a lady I stopped the other day uh, down by Home Depot Mm -hmm. and she had a brake light out. She had no idea. She had just bought this car. The car was needed some work for sure. Her window wasn't even able to roll down. So she had to roll down a rear window. It It was a minivan too. And you could tell she was just a hardworking young lady trying to get through life. And 
when I told her her taillight was out, it was that feeling of it's almost relief of, oh, I got stopped because of this light. But yeah. then almost I could almost feel her stress of how am I going to afford to go get this? I could just feel it. And I told her, I said, I got some really good news for you, though. I had this voucher program. She goes, you're kidding me. No, you don't. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and and I gave her that. She goes, oh, my gosh, you're the best. And this, that, and the other. So she was just beside herself knowing that this exists. She, just, and she had never heard of it. So those are little things we are doing, not just to prove that we're all for the community, but we're, we're acting on the things we're saying. Right. We're doing our very best, not just to say it because I, and I said this publicly, so many police leaders like a script will come out and tell you community oriented policing and our department strives on this and we do this. And it goes in one ear and out the other of the public, because if they don't see that and feel that those are just words and most police leaders there, I think the national time frame of a police chief or a lifespan is three to four years. Okay. That's the average, you know, in, in some unique cases, they, they're longer, mm-hmm. but average, you get a police chief that comes in. If they're not from the area, it takes a couple of years just to start to get to know the community. And then you're already announcing your retirement and you're gone or you go to another agency and then there's a new leader and then that, that changes. So bringing that stability is something I feel is important. I'm hoping that I'm able to do it, but mm-hmm. um, getting to know people, I know the families and I've, oh, not just because I'm the chief today, when I was an officer, when I was a detective, when I was a corporal, when I was um, a sergeant, I got to know families in and out. I would go check on them. I would, you know, I can tell you story after story of what I have done to get to know people, people who are struggling financially, people j- just on my way in to work this morning mm-hmm. is a good example. And right when I get down by the Home Depot area, there's this van, this guy, he's, uh, and he's kind of signaling that he needs to jump and his van is really beat up. And I carry a little battery charger jumper and I get out and I jump this thing. And he says to me, he goes, you know, gosh, I just hope the police don't come and give me a ticket for blocking the road. <laughs> And I said, I'm pretty sure they're not going to do that. He said, you think so? I said, pretty sure. I said, I'm, I'm a police officer here. He goes, oh, really? You work here? I said, I'm actually the chief here. Mm-hmm. He said, no, you're not. I said, I am. I said, I think you're going to be okay. Let's yeah. just get you. We got him jumped and out of the road. Right. But just doing these little things, these little acts of compassion, really trying to help people, people appreciate that and they know that. And I've just always been about the mindset of it does. It really doesn't matter to me. You know, I don't like to, to say the year I was born, but I will. I was born in 1981 Mm -hmm. and I didn't grow up with, with racism. In fact, when I was brand new and the only racism that we had is, uh, it came from my dad's side because he came from another country and he was antagonized because he didn't speak the language well and he was different. And so my dad was always very sensitive about him treat everyone well because he didn't like it. He didn't like that, that at all of the treatment. He stood up for a lot of his friends that came over to this country around the same time. Right. But I, I was a very young police officer working nights and I stopped. I didn't know exactly who the man is. He's still around and what he was driving. And he had this little pickup truck, two door with full blown tinted windows. And I'm working nights mm-hmm. and I stopped him. And as he's unrolling the window, he starts to call me a racist and tell me I stopped him because of this. I have only been a cop here. It was probably my second week on midnights by myself, mm-hmm. but I only been a cop here for about five months. He was much older than I was. And I remember how offended I was. I was so angry. Like, how could you accuse me of that? And I I realized through time, it wasn't just, it wasn't me personally, but it was absolutely the uniform I was wearing. It was the police car I was driving. Because you said this at the beginning of your question, and you were absolutely right. 
Seaside had an awful reputation with the public. The stories I have heard, I remember as a kid, the police here, they were, you didn't want to get contact by the police here because they were very physical. Mm -hmm. We already knew that. Right. Other, other agencies, they were as well. I, I can tell you that for a fact, but Seaside was a different level. You did not want to run, have a bad encounter with a Seaside cop. They were extremely physical. Yeah. And even as a young kid, I knew of this reputation. So I was always very careful when I was out here. Um, but they, they had a bad reputation and the, one of the stories is just down the street here was you weren't allowed to drive near not him Plaza. Now it used to be Dunwani Manor. You could not drive or go to any call here without three police officers in a group. You couldn't mm -hmm. because there was so much hate for the police that they would throw bottles. And even at times they would fire off gunshots just to scare off the cops there. So and throwing bricks and I would hear these things. And some of me, part of me didn't really believe it to that extent until I started to investigate at a very young age, the murder of Chris Lopes right here at the Dunwani Manor. Yes. And the first piece of information that I could not absorb or maybe didn't want to absorb was the fact that he was dying in driveway seven and there was a large crowd and there was multiple police that responded and it took the police 20 minutes to get from the sidewalk of Sonoma to halfway into this driveway to render aid to him. Because even though most of the attendees of this party were friends with Chris, they hated the police so much that, and, and didn't trust the police to come to try to rescue their friend. So they had to wait to escort uh, fire and EMS and everyone else who actually came in to try to render aid. That's when I knew those stories were true that I had heard. And I, I made it a mission for me personally, and this was around 2007, eight ish when I first found this information, I made a mission to have a relationship up there mm -hmm. and I would go up there. Now this always bothered me there. It's not like that anymore, but they used to have a sign that said, it just said, no, no skateboarding, no basketball, no dodgeball, no, nothing, just mm -hmm. no. And the, in the only courtyard and at the time they had the, uh, dilapidated playground. And then they had this courtyard with really, there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what are these kids supposed to do? So I'd walk through there. I'd talk to people. And, you know, it was difficult at first. They see a police uniform is always what's wrong. Right. But I would go there for no reason. And then when I became a supervisor in 2011, every day I would go to uh, Paris Bakery here. Mm -hmm. That's actually my wife's bakery. Okay. I go to Paris Bakery, grab a cup of coffee, and I go park right by the playground on Sonoma, windows down. And anybody that walked by, I try to offer them a sticker, I try to give them a sticker or talk to them. And I drink coffee. And then one day I'm sitting there having coffee. It's a beautiful morning. And there's this little boy playing in the sandbox. It's a school day. It's a little boy, very young. And his mom is outside kind of watching him. And then I hear her yelling, clear as day. She, I want to say his name was Anthony. That's my son's name too. But mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not positive on that. But I remember she said his name and said, um, get out of there. I don't want you to bring fleas home again. Mm. Of, the sand, of the playground sandbox mm -hmm. where this young boy lives. Yeah. And I was so, it made me angry. And I got out of the car and I walked over and I talked to this lady. I said, I'm sorry to bother you. Is there fleas in here? She goes, oh yeah, there's fleas. And they find crack pipes in here and needles. And so I don't like my son to play here very long. Said, oh my God, like we got to do something. You know, I don't know what to do. I want to fix it. I don't know what to do. And that's kind of a long story. But what happened was there was already a group of residents at the Delmonte Manor, now him, that were working on some form of, a, of a recovery to that playground. It was terrible. Okay. And, um, I heard about it. Like, this is perfect. 
it's already here. I don't even have to form anything. I'd like to be a part of it. And for two years straight, almost every Tuesday for two years, I was here from, I think we met at six o'clock, six o'clock on. I would meet here with a group of residents and the gentleman from Chamber of Commerce every single Tuesday. We did fundraiser. We did this big fundraiser where the PD came out and cooked hot dogs and hamburgers. And I think we made like $700 this one Saturday and we were fried, all of us. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it takes like fifty or $60,000. This isn't going to work. Right. There was a young lady that lived there who was very familiar with Grant Riding and she was phenomenal about really getting us some good funding. Mm-hmm. And we partnered with, I think it's Miracle Playgrounds. I don't know if that's their exact name, but partnered with them and they they were able to give us costs, you know, at cost, base mm-hmm. cost for certain playground equipment. Um, and then this thing, it took us two years to do it. But that original playground before they did this remodel, every time I drive by there and I, I never avoid it, I just think, wow. And then we had PM landscaping donated services to do all the landscaping. But I just felt so good. The playground that they had there was 30 years old and it was secondhand when they gave it to the Delmonte Manor 30 years prior. So they had this old equipment and they gave it the city of Seaside right? because I will tell you the leadership that from what I can tell you has always had that compassion and want to help that I've seen, but they just didn't have the backing. They didn't have, they just didn't have what Monterey or Carmel had. Okay. Um, but I don't think I answered your question, but somewhere in there, it may be in there. You did. You okay. did. And you mentioned the lights on program, which I want to talk a little bit more about, but there's another program that I heard about called flock. That is supposed to reduce crime in our community. What is Flock and how will it help us? So Flock is essentially, it's a a license plate reader camera system. They're solar powered. They're around town. We didn't tell the public where it is just to give it away that much. Right. (laughs) But I've said at the same time, you won't miss them. Okay. They actually look pretty clean. And I'll I'll tell you where one is. One is across from the fire station. Okay. If you you Mm -hmm. just go down the block in front of the fire station, you can see one. It's a camera, has a little solar panel. Mm -hmm. And... There was always a concern with these when when Flock came out. It's just the name of their their company. When they came out, there was a concern that you know police departments are monitoring your everyday activity. That's really not at all how it works. All it monitors is it reads license plates that go by these cameras. That's all it does. Unless your car is involved in a crime, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't. It does not. Uh, um, well, it'll capture your license plate for thirty days, but it does not pull in on. Miss Yvonne just drove through this area. Okay. So I'll give you an example. And we get alerts. So like on my phone here, if if there's anything reported to the state, they call it CLETS, uh, California Law Enforcement Telecommunication System. That's entered into a statewide database, and every law enforcement agency will have access to this, and they get what's called a hit. You get those on kidnapping, missing persons, silver alerts, stolen vehicles, uh, stolen license plates, major things. Once that's entered into a system, that plate, if a police officer is to run that plate, it'll automatically dispatcher it'll come up as a hit. This is a stolen vehicle, it's a stolen whatever, or mm-hmm. you know, this this vehicle was involved in a homicide in another area of the state, something to that effect. Okay. So these cameras that are around town, and there's we have twenty-five that are around town, and they're primarily in areas where you come in and out of the city. That's mm-hmm. primarily where they are. And there's some within residential areas, not a lot. But it's really designed for people who are coming in, doing harm or doing harm and trying to leave. Okay. So we'll capture them. We had a, uh, a variety of things we've already used this for. There was a, a trailer that's been doing construction on Hilby for probably a year plus. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us have driven past this trailer a bunch of times. The day after we had Flock set up, 
this trailer went by and it was a stolen trailer. Really? It was stolen <laughs> out of, um, I think Sacramento or San Jose or somewhere in that region. It was stolen. And this poor guy who works in construction bought it off somebody else and thought it was all legitimate. He didn't know. Had no idea. Mm-hmm. And he had this trailer and we're able to casually pull up and say, hi, is this your trailer? Yes, it is. And how'd you get this trailer? <laughs> We were able to actually get this back to the owner who's been missing it because it was stolen a year prior, yeah. sold a year later. And he's like, wow, I thought I'd never see this trailer again. And that was just one example of that. We've had uh, two stolen vehicles, well, one stolen vehicle, another stolen license plate we've recovered in town. And um, we had uh, information on some gang activity that happened where some some guys went out and they were flashing their colors and allegedly brandishing a firearm here in town. And all we had, and this is what's really unique about this system, all we had was it's a white car, I think with four doors and they didn't have a plate number, but they said, if I see the car it had tinted windows and it had, you know, had some damage on the right side. So we were able to go into the system and you just hit these little filters looking for all white cars. So it filters out. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to ask you. How does it do that? Yeah. And then you, you put a time frame in, you hit that and it will give you every car. We were able to pull up this car, show this to the person. They said, that's the car. And you can actually one guy's arm hanging out of the window and we're like, this is now we have your full license plate. And now we have a full blown investigation with real leads into this. And hopefully the hope is, is to try to diminish that tension that's arising between some of the gang culture that's, that still does exist in Seaside. So it, it is a phenomenal tool. Um, the thing is, and there's a lot of groups out there that they, they just don't want police to abuse that tool. Right. And I was confident when we did all the research that it's, Everything's tracked. You have to have a login to go into the system. You have to have a reason as to why you're looking in the system. If you enter something, you have to put all your information. So it's it's not like something where I could go in right now and look at live of every car that's going up Hillby or up wherever it may be. Um, this is something to where if something happens, I have a tool now where I can go and say, did this car come through? And another good example they were just telling me is agencies are calling us. So CHP had a pursuit with somebody the other day. Mm-hmm. And they called us and said, hey, can you check your guys' camera, see if this car went through there? We don't have the full license plate. Right. Um, we've helped out Monterey with the same exact thing. It was a pursuit. Oh, we don't have the full plate. It was this white car. Do we have a full license plate? Here's the car that went through the city. So we have that. And now they're installing in sync with that is shot detection. Mm-hmm. So shot detection will be around the city. And what that is, if there's a loud explosion within the city, it will pinpoint within about 90 feet of where that explosion came from. The cameras will also go off in that region to start capturing a list of vehicles going by. It's designed for gunshots. It's what it is. And their technology is improving to do things like screeching tires and um, breaking glass and fireworks. 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 Which is a big deal. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. So that's the technology. That's kind of where we're going. And again, we're one of the first ones. Pacific Grove and Seaside were the first. As of a couple of weeks ago, Pacific Grove hadn't installed theirs yet. So Seaside, uh, next to Salinas, because they've had that for some time, mm-hmm. Seaside, again, is the first one in the region to really do this and, and launch this. And we've heard some of the community concerns. And and like we said, we'll, we'll, we'll hold ourselves accountable and they'll hold us accountable. It's not going to be misused. I'm very confident of that. It's been proven to be very effective already. It's only been up for a few weeks. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. It's already a useful tool mm-hmm. then. Yeah. Okay. I know that you're proud of Seaside Police Department's involving, involvement in solving cold cases over the past few years. 
Are there any active cases that the department is working on right now and that you'd like to tell my listeners about? We, we have quite a few. We have quite a few active cases that we're still working on. Um, there's a couple that involve babies that are a priority for us. There was a young, a young baby, I believe it was in the eighties who was bound, tied up and buried. They believe buried alive. In Seaside? In Seaside. Down by the train tracks. It was on the border of Sand City and, and Seaside. Seaside took the primary case. Um, that case is looking really good. That's one case that we, we are working hard on. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up cold cases because that's another thing that I have really taken a passion for. Chris Lopes was the cold case that I worked. That was a case that I solved from nothing. Um, the case, ultimately, the, the person arrested in that was never convicted because the case was so old. And that's kind of, I'm torn on that piece itself. But at, at the end of the day, it made me learn a very valuable lesson. And that is, our job is, we're not prosecutors. Our job is to gather the facts, find the truth, do it with integrity, make sure we have all the pieces where they need to be, and hand it over to the, to the prosecutor's office. And at that time, they really didn't have a choice. When we had a preliminary hearing, but it didn't go further than that because everybody involved in this case had passed. Essentially, everybody had passed in this case, investigators, uh, coroners, everybody was gone in this in this case. And and I say this a little bit with, with shame, but it's the truth. The sloppiness of the investigation from day one, December 21st, 1969, is a big part. There was one police officer, his name was Marv Dyke, very well respected out here. He wasn't even a detective, he was a patrol officer. They didn't even have detectives in 1969. He really tried to solve this case mm-hmm. until he retired. But but outside of that, culturally, there was no effort to solve this case. And Chris Lopes was a 19-year-old African-American. And I can't see any other reason why this case wasn't looked into other than that. Why wasn't this case looked into? Because there are other murder cases that happened that had binders and binders. Mm-hmm. And this case had, it was in a thin folder. And then when he opened it, one of the first documents that still exist was in 1971, they had bloody clothes from two potential suspects. One who I arrested years later was destroyed. That always bothered me. The other thing that bothered me was when I inquired in 2007 as a patrol officer to the senior people as to this, to this case, I've heard about this because they talk Police officers love to brag. I would know this and I was on that call and I went here and I would hear these guys at the time who had been around for 25 years. And here I am with maybe four or five years under my belt. And you hear, you hear the same, they'd forget they tell you the same story every time, but they never brought up this case. They talked about all these other shootings and this murder happened here and this guy's car flipped and they shot the AK-47, never brought up this case. And I stumbled across this case really just talking to this gentleman who we would arrest on a weekly basis for public intoxication. I'll never, I know his name, I won't say it, but he would always wear this uh, black and red checkered jacket. And when he was out, you hear that description on the radio, you knew you would have to arrest him. He would get really, really intoxicated and really aggressive with every anybody and everybody. Right. So, but again, I treated this man like a person. When I took him down to the jail through a conversation, I asked him, hey, you've been here a very long time. Have you ever seen anything crazy out here? What are, you, what are your stories? Right. And he, you know, he was slurring his speech and he said, well, I remember uh, seeing Chris Lopes get killed and you guys never solved it. I wow. Said, Chris <laughs> Lopes. And I started writing it down in my little notepad. Mm-hmm. And 
went to a sergeant who was the, at the time was a senior sergeant of the department, been here for 25, 26 years. His name was Glenn Hanano. And I asked him about it. He worked investigations and he had different assignments where he would know these things. He goes, ah, I never heard of it. He goes, he goes, he's, he's he called him a drunk. He's a drunk. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I wouldn't even waste my time. I said, I don't know. He seemed pretty like factual. Like he, he wasn't just making this up in, right. in a drunken stupor. He really seemed like, so long story short, he, the sergeant said, go talk to the investigations commander. So I did. Ah, man, never heard of it. He tells me, never heard of it. doesn't exist. And I said, well, can we just look? I just want to double check. Just get this off my chest. So we look and it was really disorganized. The only organization of the files at the time, that's when Seaside PD, the investigation was on, on Broadway. We, there was one shelving of solve and one unsolved. And that was the only organization. Everything else was boxes. And there were some cases in binders. I mean, a lot of cases were in binders, but then there was these just random boxes with various pictures in. You couldn't tie one to one case or another. And it wasn't in the solved cases and it wasn't in the unsolved cases. Right. I thought, okay. So I just kind of was perusing through and I just grabbed, there's this little folder in there. I'm like, well, this one just looks, uh, uh, you know, by itself. And I pulled it out. Right. And it, had the, it didn't even have his name correct. It, it said Christian Lopez with a Z. Mm. His name is Christian Lopes. Now, again, I, I mentioned I'm Portuguese. Lopes is a Portuguese last name with right. an S. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a bunch of Lopes. So it's just a unique name. And like this, this has got to be it. Lopez. It's not Christian Lopez. It didn't even have his name spelled correctly yeah. in all these years. So that always bothered me. So just, just to kind of wrap up the cold cases, um, I created a policy. It's policy 601. Because I still think part of the the conversation of reform is just like President Obama said in the um, uh, 21st century um, policing model, and that is legitimacy. You you have to be legitimate. The public wants of all of all your community. They all want one thing. They want to know if they call the police, the police will do something. If the police do not come, or if they come and do nothing, people don't trust you. They think you don't care. And in the reality, I don't know how else to say it. They probably don't. If they're coming to your house and there's you're a victim of something and they're, oh, here's your report. I mean, I don't need a report. I'll write a report. Fix it. Solve it. Bring me justice. So I changed that policy. So every three years, they rotate out a supervisor in an, our investigation division. They have to do an audit of every existing cold case. We have 33 of them. Mm-hmm. They have to audit each case to see if there's any. They don't have to do anything crazy. Just look at the case. Know what's out there in terms of DNA technology. Right. See if there's any any witnesses or victims that haven't been talked to. Right. Or whatever it may be. And let me know as the police chief. Send me a, a report that's readable that I know, okay, this case is a priority. Oh, DNA, this one we need to retest. Let's do this. But it disgusts me that nationwide there is no accountability where you can go and, and have a, a loved one murdered. And you have to rely on a police department to say, it's cold. We have no further leads. Right. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's unacceptable to me. That That is where there should be laws in place. And if they're not, I have a policy. But there should be laws in place that say, every X amount of time, you have to submit some audit somewhere to hold police departments. You cannot just tell me it's cold because you as one single detective couldn't solve it. I want to make sure that it is a priority. And my priority is your priority. Not you get to pick, well, this victim has a constituency. This victim might be more high profile than right. this victim. I don't know. So we're changing that. So, yes, we have some cold cases that are in the works. We solved a lot of cold cases. 
And there's one I want to talk about, but I won't because um, I'm pretty confident it's going to get solved. But DNA technology is massive. And what we did with Annie Pham's case, working with the DA's office and uh, Bill Clark from retired from Monterey, he's on their task force. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, it's incredible what they've done, taking the hair, rootless hair, yeah. and are able to get a profile from that and working with the top genealogists in the country to get a profile. That That's a major case and I'm just so proud of it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. You said there are 33 cases yeah. in Seaside. We're a small community. Mm-hmm. So I know in bigger cities, the numbers must be much, much higher, but the DNA is helping to, to lessen that. Definitely. Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to tell us today that we haven't covered? Gosh, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much I would love to tell you, but you know, I don't know. Maybe your viewers won't want me back to, to talk more, but I, sometimes I won't stop. But I just, I just want to say, being one of the youngest chiefs, I, I say probably the country, which is probably factual, but definitely regional, regionally and definitely the state. I want to shape the culture. I want to change the culture. And I'm going to take the words off of um, the attorney, Ben Crump, and he spoke at Tyree Nichols' funeral. And he said, and this was beautiful for me, and I've mentioned this before, but he finally said what I wanted someone to say, because I've heard a lot of different people talk. And he said, we have to change the culture of policing. And he, he was making the audience say, repeat after me, change the culture. That is so true because the culture is everything. Every police department has its own unique culture to it. It's different, but there is a underlying culture of policing that is starting to break through. And I believe if you have the right police chiefs in place and they have the ability to inspire others, we can shape the culture. But you can never change a culture without having your community hand in hand. We're doing that the best we can. And for those who feel we can do better, please contact me, call me, open, open arms, open ears. I want to listen. I want to learn. But Seaside is, has become a leader and I want to continue to be a leader here regionally. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join me on this podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and a very special thank you once again to Seaside Police Chief Nick Borges for being my guest today. This podcast releases every Friday with 30 to 60 minute episodes featuring interviews with special guests, commentary, and my personal take on current events happening in this outrageous world we live in. We hope you'll listen in on our next episode coming next Friday. CCC with YT Podcast is executive produced by Yvonne Thomas. Theme music by Shayla, the artist. Set the trends I don't follow. Recognize that I'm the truth.